0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. It feels really good to be back in the pulpit and back with you again, preaching. And uh, I'm so thankful to Pastor Stan and Pastor Frank for covering the pulpit while I was taking a break and getting ready for our next couple series. And I'm excited to start a short series this morning on the throne room of God, a wonderful vision that the Apostle John was given by God to see. I'm going to start by asking you a question. When you are walking around or traveling and you see something interesting or amazing, what's the first thing that you do? Probably most of us, the first thing we do is we reach into our pockets, we grab our smartphone, and we take a picture or we capture some video. And, and we might be doing it, you know, to record a memory for ourselves, but probably, if we're honest, we're really doing that. We're taking that picture or capturing that video because we're going to share it with someone else later. Either on social media or, or just when we're talking about it. And we do that because we don't really trust our descriptive powers alone to share that experience with other people. I mean, how many times have you been saying to somebody, oh my gosh, you would not believe this place. I, you got to, I, and you're trying to describe it. It was unbelievable. It was amazing. And then you just pull out your phone and go, here, let me just show you. And you show them, and sometimes, even though what you remember was so amazing, they look at that photo or watch the video, and the reaction is kind of underwhelming. They're like, oh, that's nice. And you're like, no, 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 you don't understand. It wasn't just nice. And you you look again at the photo or the video, and you realize that even that faithfully documented thing, it doesn't do justice to what you saw. And really, when you think about it, it's because it's not just what you saw, but it's what you experienced. You know, that's why when you go to a live concert, even if you play that song for somebody, and they, they can get it off the internet for free, um, the truth is, it's nothing like being at the concert, feeling the drums and the bass guitar reverberating in your bones. There's something about the experience that's really hard to convey to somebody else. We try, but often you find that words just aren't enough. In Revelation 4-6, to the Apostle John is given a vision that is so startling, so uh, captivating, it marks him. And he tries clumsily to share that vision somehow, to describe it in the words that were available to him. I'm really indebted to my friend, Pastor Peter LeBlanc, who who right now pastors Beacon Community Church in Hoffman Estates. And we meet every month with all the pastors in, in Hoffman Estates that want to come, and we just gather to build friendship, to support and, and pray for one another's ministries. And he was sharing with us this vision, because he was sharing that he was really captivated by what God showed him as he read Revelation 4 to 6. And... In the way that he shared it, it started to help me experience some of the wonder of what he was seeing. This sermon series is in fact born out of what he shared uh, just very recently with me, and so I'm really indebted to him. And as he shared that wonder, I, he helped me to see it a little bit, but then I saw something, I experienced something in my reading and meditating on this passage that I'm going to try clumsily to describe to you, and I already know I'm going to be frustrated because my words won't feel adequate to capture some of what I think God wants to show us through this vision. It's at times like this that I'm reminded why we desperately need artists in the world. Because artists, they don't just create sights and sounds and words, but really the best artists create experiences. And when they try to do that with something that has moved them, many of them can successfully help us recapture or re-experience what they saw, wonder, Awe, mystery, majesty, those kinds of things are captured by the best artists. And I've been praying all week that some of the artists among us will be stirred by the vision that God gave to us through these two chapters, or these three chapters really. And that um, because you see what God wants us to see, you would be stirred to create something as an act of worship. And if you feel moved to do that, I'd love it if you would share that with me and even with the rest of the church, I would love to see what God stirs up in you as you behold this vision together with me. So I'm going to do my best attempt to help you see some of what I saw that really stirred up my heart. John's vision begins with a doorway. In Revelation chapter four, and we're going to really just park ourselves right now in Revelation 4 for this message begins this way. After I looked, after this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John's vision begins with a door that opens up into heaven. It's really a door in heaven that's opened up to us, so that we are able to access this with John. And I think it's helpful to think about this more as a portal to another reality. You know, we usually think about doorways as leading from one place to another destination, but think of this throne room less as a destination and more as another dimension. It's a portal to a reality that always surrounds us, but it's a reality we often miss. Because in in day-to-day life, it's hard to know that all around us right now, God is ruling and the spiritual realm definitely exists. It is active, it's alive all around us. But that dimension is often invisible to us. In Celtic Christianity, (coughs) especially around the 5th century, uh, in Ireland and Scotland, these Christians developed an idea, a phrase called thin places. It's a really uh, interesting concept. They talked about places on earth where God so frequently met with people, either because of the natural beauty and the wonder would disarm you, or because people had prayed so frequently over that earth, that little patch of land, that God consistently met. They're called thin places because what they're saying is the boundary between heaven and earth, between the spiritual realm and our physical realm, seems especially thin at these places. They're places where, when you're there, very often the spiritual realm, or the presence of God feel palpably real to you. For me, Barnabas Landing, a small private retreat center on Keats Island just off the coast of Vancouver, is such a place. I've spent many, many wonderful weeks there uh, as part of the Arrow Leadership Program, and I've had some very profound encounters with God at this place. For me, Keats Island is a thin place. It's a place where I can consistently feel the presence of God. I've received some incredible experiences, including my first experience of supernatural healing on that island, in that place. And as I hear the testimony of the founder of that retreat center, just sharing about how they walked around and literally prayed over every patch of ground on that place. How many Christians have journeyed there earnestly seeking after God, wanting to hear His voice. And it happens again and again and again. I love this idea of thin places, and it, it, it points to the idea of what John was experiencing. It was as if a door was opened up, and he saw right in front of him a reality that surrounds him, but that he often misses completely because he's blinded by what's happening in his life. Now, you've got to recall that just before these visions of the throne room, John had just been given seven letters dictated to him by Jesus for seven churches in Asia Minor. And and each of these churches is a little bit different, but one of the things that binds them together is that these are all churches that were struggling in some way. They were facing threats either from within or from without. But they were churches that were embattled. It was hard for them just to live much less hang on to faith in the situations they found themselves in. And really that doesn't sound that that different from our situation today. The church today is also facing threats from inside and from outside of itself. And so these were churches that as they would read these letters later and hear the words of Jesus, they would be reminded how stark and hard their reality was and yet this vision was intended to give them hope and encouragement to say, I know that right now, your reality, the, the, uh, the reality you could touch and hear and see, it feels like it's nothing but struggle. It's nothing but hardship. But just know as I open this doorway to you, to this other dimension, that this is a vision of another reality that does exist, in which God is firmly seated on His throne and absolutely in control. And that's that reality surrounds us. It informs how we endure the hardships of the reality that we can see. The first thing that he sees in this vision, verse 2, it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne, in heaven with someone sitting on it. So the very first thing that John sees in his vision is the base of a throne. As he looks up, he can discern someone, and he's hesitant even to try to describe him. I think the reason he says someone is not because he doesn't know who it is, but because once you begin trying to describe a God who is so magnificent, your words fail you, and your attempt actually skews the picture quite a bit. Have you ever tried to describe something you realize you were actually messing up the image in the other person's mind? Because your attempt was doing injustice to the thing you're describing. And so what John is saying is, listen, I know it was God, but I can't really describe him other than to say someone. He, he tries later with a few images of jewels and whatever, but the idea is, what dominates heaven, what dominates the throne room, is God himself seated on the throne. What he's trying to say is, no matter what is going on for us, this is the reality that dominates the universe that whatever it feels like to us right now, God has never once left the throne. And knowing that, knowing that God remains in control and He reigns over everything, that is meant to give us real power to face the struggles that are happening in our dimension. There are some people who have had an extraordinary ability to see that truth, and it has given them real power to face unbelievable challenges in this life. Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch woman who along with her family hid so many Jewish people from the Nazis. In fact, it's estimated that their family in their little house above a clockmaker's shop hid and saved some uh, an estimated 800 Jews from Nazis. And one of the things she famously said is there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems. Only plans. I I love that. I, I love her attitude and her perspective is we're scared all the time. We feel like everything that happens is like, oh my gosh, oh no, oh my goodness. And we panic all the time. But he says, if you could she says, if you could see the throne room, you'd realize God is not shaken by this. He doesn't have emergencies and unexpected occurrences. There is no panic with God. He has plans for everything he allows. But in the end, He reigns. He is in control. The vision continues. verse 4, Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. So there are now, there's an additional component to this vision. There's 24 elders seated on 24 thrones surrounding God's throne. We don't know who these people are. Many people have have made guesses, but their identity is not known. And that's really important. What we can say, though, is these are 24 of the most significant Christian human beings who ever lived. This is the hall of fame of all those who have ever claimed to know God and rule with Him. They represent all of us, to be sure, but these are 24 people who, if we could, and and this is what is amazing to me, If we met them, if we could identify them, whole books could be written about each one of those 24 beings sitting on their 24 thrones. Now, don't just gloss over that, because if you could meet the 24 most important or significant Christians that ever lived, you'd want to spend a little time staring. There would be awe and wonder. I I remember going to this invitation-only gathering of about 100 pastors from all over America in Dallas. It was back in 2009. And I found myself seated at a table with these three men. Kent Bishore, who at that time pastored Mariner's Church. Francis Chan, who at that time pastored Cornerstone Community Church. And Erwin McManus, who pastored Mosaic Church. I I mean, these are guys whose books I read, between the three of them, they were pastoring something like 25,000 people. They were, in my nerdy pastor world, rock stars. And it's the four of us at a table, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, how did I find myself at this table? I don't even know what I'm doing here. And I was so starstruck, so moved by just fellow human beings. And on top of that, none of you guys are impressed, because you're not pastors, you don't know, but like, for me as a pastor, these are just other pastors. Sure, their ministries are bigger, their platforms larger, but I was starstruck. And they're just people. But I want you to think about this, if you can meet the 24 most significant Christians ever wouldn't your attention be riveted on those people? And the vision continues, and we're not done. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. I tried to scour the Internet looking for Artistic depictions of this, they were all so hokey and lame, I didn't even bother. The the, the attempts at drawing this, imagining this, actually ruined it for me. Here's what I can say. Any one of these creatures, I would pay a fortune, I would travel any distance, wait any length of time in line, to see them with my own eyes. If Jurassic Park was real and they had cloned living dinosaurs, would there be anything that could keep you from visiting that place? If aliens landed in Central Park and they were, they were taking meetings, but selling tickets, would there be anything that could keep you from wanting to see them with your own eyes? When we see something alien, something we've never seen before, something so fantastical, it, it, it creates a sense of wonder and awe in us. And here are four creatures surrounding the throne right in front of God. Clearly, these are four beings that have a very special status. Imagine how riveted you would be Just seeing this spectacle, we're not done though, because the vision continues. It says, And from the throne came flashes of lightnings, rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal." So on top of all these amazing human beings and these fantastical creatures, you have this, this stage set that is unlike anything you've ever seen, and there's visual and sound effects that create this immersive experience. If you've ever been to one of those Dolby theaters and watched on an IMAX screen and you feel the rumbling of the explosions in your bones, it's a small taste of what John was experiencing. And all that to say, there is no shortage of spectacle to captivate the mind and the eyes and the ears. In this throne room, it is the ultimate immersive experience. These creatures that would inspire us to worship them, these human beings who we could obsess over for years just listening to their stories. And yet, those 24 most significant Christians are not even named in this account because in spite of all of their gloriousness, they're not important here. Nowhere near as important as the God who sits on the throne. The fact that they're not even named, they're not even identified, all these other things are mentioned almost in passing, because the entire structure of the throne room is a circle, and at the center of the circle, all eyes are on a throne and the God who is seated upon it. There is only one focal point in heaven. And that's something we desperately need to recapture and remember as Christians today. I remember visiting Dubai some years ago and uh, seeing all these skyscrapers, any one of which would have been at home in any skyline in any city of the world. They were very tall buildings, and yet there was one that towered above them all, the Burj Khalifa. I had the privilege of riding an elevator to the very top of it. There's an open-air observation deck, and from there you can look out on the city and you see the curvature of the earth because you're so high up. This photo captures even those other skyscrapers that are tall enough to poke above the cloud layer. The Burj Khalifa looks like a skyscraper standing on top of all of them, even above the clouds. And that's a visual image that to me captures the spirit of this throne room. Is that there are all these things that are so worthy of awe and wonder and yet even they turn and, away and face this one God who is on His throne, and they bow and worship in awe and wonder of Him. There is no question who is the greatest in that place. You know, every day the world conspires to make God seem smaller to us, doesn't it? And our own struggle with faith, it's hard to know every day that God is great that He's greater than what I'm going through, He's greater than my doubts, He's greater than my pain and my struggles. But this is what the vision that John was given is meant to to say to us, is God is greater than everyone and everything. And that is a source, the bedrock, of our confidence and our strength. No amount of worship or creativity we ever give to Him will do justice to who He is. You could spend your whole lifetime as a Christian artist attempting to give worship to God and you will never succeed in even scratching the tip of what God really is. And I think that's the frustration of the best artists is they can't actually fully capture what it is that their hearts have seen. As the vision continues, we read in verse 8, the second half, Day and night, These creatures, the elders and these four fantastical creatures and all the other inhabitants of the throne room, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Day and night, every living creature in the throne room says over and over and over, Holy, holy, holy. You know, in the Bible, when a word is spoken once, it's important. When it's repeated twice, it's an emphasis. But when it's repeated three times, it's an unprecedented level of emphasis. It's saying, this is boldface, all caps, uh, 180-point font. This is the most important thing you can know about what is coming next. The most important thing you can know about God is that He's holy. And that word holy means a lot of things. It means totally other He's not like you and me in some of the most important ways. We can try constantly to try to get a handle on who God is. You will never capture it in this lifetime. He's transcendent. He is set apart. It also means that he is absolutely perfectly clean. He is totally pure and untouched by evil. It's the he's the kind of clean that makes you feel dirty by comparison. I mean, have you ever met someone so beautiful, so good-looking, they make you feel hideous just by standing next to them. You're like, I thought I was okay, but can you leave the room? Just being around you makes me get uglier by the minute. It's that kind of effect. If you could see how pure, how transcendent, how other God really is, you would, you would squirm with discomfort to sit in the same room with Him. And I think about how casually we often think about or talk about God. I know we understand that God is holy in our heads, but do we really understand how holy God is in our hearts? We're so comfortable around Him, and that's not bad. He does want us to come to Him, but we're comfortable in a way that in some some ways diminishes who He really is. You know how we know that we don't really fully acknowledge the holiness of God? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book Life Together, made this staggering observation. It it really grabbed me last month when I read it. Listen to what he writes. Pay attention. This is so important. Why is it often easier for us to acknowledge our sins before God than before another believer? God is holy and without sin, a just judge of evil and an enemy of all disobedience. But another Christian is sinful as we are, knowing from personal experience the night of secret sin. Should we not find it easier to go to one another than to the holy God? But if that is not the case, we must ask ourselves whether we often have not been deluding ourselves about our confession of sin to God, whether we have not instead been confessing our sins to ourselves and also forgiving ourselves. Let me break that down for you just a bit. What he's saying is, have you noticed that it's so much easier to sit in your room and go, God, I'm so sorry for what I just did. Uh, I hate myself. I really regret it. Please forgive me. Amen. It's so much more comfortable to confess your sin to God than if I were to say to you, will you go uh, and talk to that, that brother in your small group? Tell that sister what you did. Confess your sin to them. Ask them to speak the words of forgiveness to you in the name of Jesus. Why is it that we find it easier to admit our sin before a holy God than before another slob like one of us? Another person who just sins as much as we do, who is as comfortable and familiar with brokenness and frailty and moral evil as we are, and yet we fear their reaction, their judgment, even more than what God might think. And so he says, if it's so casual, so comfortable for you to confess your sins to God, and yet you won't confess to another human being, could it be that when you're confessing to God, you're really just talking to yourself, and you're just forgiving yourself? If we saw who God is, we would shake in awe and fear that we are confessing our sins before a God this clean. And then we would marvel and be moved by the fact that this God accepts us as we are and speaks forgiveness and restoration over us. And he goes on in that book to say, could this be the explanation for why we continue to wrestle with the same sins over and over and over? Is because you cannot have victory over sin by confessing to yourself and forgiving yourself. But to stand before a God this majestic, to admit your frailty and your lowliness and to be picked back up touched by Him, restored and forgiven, that is a life-changing experience. And it begins by recognizing God for who He really is. I'll close this way. pastor friend recently told me about a man in his church who refused to stay at service. He walked out because he really did not like their masking requirement. Now, it's a very politically and, and, and divisive issue right now, so I don't want to comment on the masking part of it, But there was a deal-breaker for him. Basically, it was, if I have to wear this mask, I'm not staying. And he walked out. Now, I don't want to judge him too harshly, because he's not the only one with deal-breakers that drive people away from church, is he? I think many of us have that kind of deal-breaker thing, that thing that starts to strain our ability to want to worship God at church. Maybe your deal-breakers. If that person's going to be there, I'm not coming. Or... If they make us do those stupid motions one more time for the kid songs, I'm not going. I don't know what it is, but if we could see the vision that John saw, if we could see our God for who He really is, if we could just capture for a moment who He really is, the awe and wonder that should pour out of our hearts in response to Him. If we could see that every other glorious being in that throne room, the elite of heaven, all bow down, step down from their thrones, get on their faces, take their crowns off their heads, and worship this God. If we could see Him for who He is, and know that this is the God you and I are invited to come together and worship every Sunday together, would there be any annoyance, any inconvenience, any distance, any cost that would keep you? from wanting to be there each time that happens. I close this way because we're facing an important turn in the road for us as a church, as a nation. Things are opening up, but somewhere in our spirits things remain closed. And I I don't want us to come back together as a church just for one another, just for this thing called Harvest, for this organization we spent decades building. I want us to come back together because God is on His throne. He's glorious and greater than anything you could imagine. And the opportunity, the privilege to come together as a church family and worship this God, the invitation to come and experience Him together in ways that we can't experience Him on our own, this is what I want to draw us back together as a church. We come together, harvest, as a church. For Jesus Christ, our Savior, for the God who saves, the God who reigns, He's the one who calls all of us out of where we are, where we've been sheltering in place for over a year. Only this God will draw us out of that and reform us as a community of faith. And So pray that God will begin revealing Himself to you in powerful ways. And if as an act of worship you feel led to create something that helps us see the glory of God for who He is, would you share it with our church to help us see what He's showing you? I pray that as God gives you a sense of this awe and wonder about Him, you would experience a renewal in your own walk with Him. On one level, worship is just an activity, an event. But on another level, it is a profound, profound, life-altering experience and encounter with the living God. If you could see God for who He truly is, you would quake in fear, be paralyzed in awe and wonder, and your heart would burst with worship. May this be the God you see. May God reveal Himself to you in this way, so that worship stops feeling like a chore and begins to feel more like the irrepressible response of your heart and your soul. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, be blessed now and forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church.